Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. Since 2010, the most listened to radio show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success, and practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from top experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on the Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on the radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome back here to the latest edition of The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you for joining us today. And uh, this is the date that I know many of you have been waiting for uh, all year. Once a year, we have Penelope Burke with us. She is the president of Cygnus Applied Research. She's an author, researcher, and mentor celebrated for some of the most important innovations in modern-day fundraising. Uh, Penelope is, uh, has been a regular guest here on The Nonprofit Coach, and she truly understands donors and what, what they want more deeply than just about anyone in the business. Uh, and that's why we invite her back, uh, because she has a brand new Burke donor survey uh, to share with us today. Um, and that's why you're listening today, because um, each year uh, Penelope comes to, uh, uh, to share with us what donors are thinking. And I often refer to her as the donor whisperer. So welcome back here uh, to the nonprofit coach, Penelope Burke. Ted, hi. It's a pleasure to be back with your listeners. It is great to have you here. Um, the reason that I refer to you as the donor whisperer is because uh, your annual survey, uh, which I want to start off by reminding um, our listeners, you know, what is the survey, how long have you been doing this, and, and why it's so significant, um, but to just give people a preview of what's to come here on this show, you always have the most up-to-date insights into what are donors thinking, what they want, and what will help them feel comfortable in giving more. So, uh, Penelope, before we get to all of that and all the wonderful things that we're going to learn from you today, take us back to what is the Burke Donor Survey, when did it start, and how do you gather all of this information that is so valuable in our industry? Uh, the Burke Survey is uh, an online anonymous survey that attracts between uh, 10 and 20,000 donors each year, so, and they're all current active donors. Uh, we started it back in 2009 when I was curious about uh, 
what was going on with philanthropy in the depths of the recession. And as you may recall, the beginning of 2009 was pretty much the worst experience for professional fundraisers. And uh, donors that year just poured into the survey. Over 25,000 people uh, tried to explain to us how they were going to stay loyal to causes they loved and uh, keep giving as generously as possible, even if they had to take the money out of the grocery budget. And that the findings of that survey were so interesting that I just did a follow-up in 2010, which again attracted thousands of donors, and then it, I just couldn't let it go. And so I have done the Burke Donor Survey every year, up to and including this year, and uh, we have as yet unpublished results for you, uh, so it's going to be fun to talk about what we've learned in 2018 about how donors gave last year and what their plans for giving are going forward. Well, and we're so glad that you didn't give up, and we're so glad that you stuck with it because it has just added to the excitement that we have each year um, for um, exactly the data that you've learned, um, and and uh, you you sort of you know brought this into um, this conference or this concept of donor-centered fundraising, which I think was born out of this research, right? That, uh, you know, donors sitting yes. at the center of the, the fundraising uh, paradigm. Um, so we're going to, uh, as, as you teased us a little bit, um, you've got uh, the results uh, in hand from the, the soon-to-be-published uh, uh, new Burke donor survey, and you're going to share with us all of the uh, uh, tips and uh, trade secrets that can be drawn uh, from not only this research, but I know, Penelope, uh, each year you, you sort of put it in the context of this longitudinal study that you have been doing uh, since, uh, since 2009. So, Penelope, if you don't mind, um, we're going to uh, just take a, a quick step back to uh, page one because we have a very special guest today uh, who is going to introduce our listeners uh, to Alzheimer's Awareness Month. Um, so we'll be right back live with Penelope Burke, president of Cygnus Applied Research, to talk about uh, this year's Burke Donor Survey. Um, and we're going to um, now uh, bring here live on the Nonprofit Coach the CEO of Alzheimer's Foundation of America, uh, Charles Fraschillo. Do I have that correct, uh, Mr. Fraschillo? Is that the pronunciation? Yes, you do. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Thanks for having me Terrific. on. Terrific. Well. I'm so pleased that your staff reached out to us uh, because Alzheimer's uh, is um, uh, a, uh, uh, a topic that is uh, near and dear to a lot of families um, and certainly um, uh, to come on the show and to share with us uh, what uh, Alzheimer's Awareness Month is about um, is a pleasure for us to give you uh, this opportunity on what we call Page One News here on the Nonprofit Coach. So. CEO, Alzheimer's Foundation of America, Charles Fraschillo, please bring us up to date on the work of your organization. Well, thank you so much. You know, the Alzheimer's Foundation of America was established back in 2002 by a caregiver whose mom had the disease back in the 80s and 90s, and there was very little support. There was a stigma attached to it. People didn't talk about Alzheimer's back then really had no place to turn to, and uh, after his mom passed away, became a little better educated, created the foundation on a national level. Uh, we're based here in New York, but we have more than 2,600 member offices nationwide throughout the entire country, 
and we're all about care, support, guidance, education, and we fund research as well. But November is a very big month, as is every day with this disease. It's Alzheimer's Awareness Month, and our goal is to promote uh, the education, the services that are available, and, and the support that's available, because we want to ensure that people know that there's a place to turn to, and we hope that individuals call the AFA helpline, which is 866-232-8484. It's open seven days a week, and it's staffed by licensed social workers that are dementia specifically uh, trained. But, you know, for the month of November, we raised the awareness about the disease. It's so prevalent in our society. More than 5 million people nationwide are living with it right now. 5 million people, that's a lot of families that are are dealing with um, a, a, as you said, um, a, a disorder that, um, you know, just robs people of their loved ones. What is new in the research and how much hope can you give families? Well, we never give up hope. And, and at the Alzheimer's Foundation of America, we fund research from Stony Brook University on Long Island all the way to Israel, the Hadassah Medical Hospital in Jerusalem. And that's all about hope. Uh, we fund research for a cure. We fund research for better treatment. Uh, the federal government uh, finally this year has a pres- in their budget has appropriated for the first time ever, a little bit more than $2 billion a year uh, for NIH to give out for research dollars. Um, there's a lot of research, clinical and behavioral trials going on through this country. Uh, so we hope someday there will be a cure, but in the absence of a cure, care is so sorely needed. So as you mentioned, more than 5 million people, it affects a lot of families. When you use a multiplier of three or four that are caregivers, you could see the impact close to 20 million people. It costs about $250 billion a year to care for individuals with this disease. It's a national epidemic that needs to be recognized. And that's uh, really part of the focus of Alzheimer's Awareness Month, is it not to uh, make sure that both families uh, who are dealing with this disease uh, can get the support and care that they need and uh, the loved one uh, who has the disease, uh, but also for those of us uh, who are not directly affected uh, to understand the effect on society and how, you know, even though we may not have someone at home who has this disease, we're all really affected by Alzheimer's, are we not? You're absolutely correct, and that's why, you know, during the month of November, we are promoting uh, free memory screenings. One of our signature programs is our National Memory Screening Program, where we offer memory screenings throughout the country, and individuals can find a site in their state close to their home by going to our website, which is alzfdn.org, and clicking on the link for National Memory Screening Program right here in New York in our offices at 322 8th Avenue on Mondays, November 5th, the 19th, and 26th from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. We're offering memory screenings. Kmart Pharmacy has joined our partnership. They will, for the third year in a row, be conducting free memory screenings in all of their stores nationwide during this month. And, you know, we hope to screen more than 50,000 people this month. That's our goal. We also have more than 300 landmarks, nearly 300 landmarks worldwide. We're very excited about that. That will be lighting up in teal, which is the color of our Alzheimer's awareness of, of for, for the Alzheimer's Foundation of America. And we have buildings from, you know, the One World Trade Center here in New York, all over the country and all over the world now, in Australia, Austria, Canada, Hungary, Ireland, Poland, Portugal, 
Taiwan, you know, anywhere in the United States as well. And they will be lighting up in teal on November 8th. And the whole purpose of that is, again, to create a discussion about Alzheimer's awareness. And uh, it's so critically important. Uh, we're also going to be traveling the country with our national continuing our Educating America tour on November 1st. We're going to be in Milwaukee. And on November 14th, we're going to be in Austin, Texas. So there's a lot going on that we are doing at the Alzheimer's Foundation of America to promote awareness throughout this world. Well, terrific. Charles Fraschillo, uh, CEO, Alzheimer's Foundation of America, thank you for being uh, our guest here on the Nonprofit Coach and for bringing us uh, the important information about Alzheimer's Awareness Month. And for the listeners of the Nonprofit Coach, if you or someone that you love uh, is uh, affected by Alzheimer's, uh, please do yourself a favor and call 866-232-8484 and reach out to the Alzheimer's Foundation of America. Uh, Charles, thank you for being our guest here today. Thanks so much for having me on. Terrific. And we will uh, head right back to our page two expert today, uh, and that is uh, Penelope Burke. Penelope, we teased uh, before uh, we went uh, to share the important information uh, about Alzheimer's Awareness uh, Month. Um, we teased uh, that you've got some really important information that every single listener uh, today here on the Nonprofit Coach needs to know if they want to succeed uh, this holiday season, if they want to succeed in 2019 with their donors. Uh, so, Penelope, welcome back here to the Nonprofit Coach. And why don't we get right into this and help us understand what are some of the highlights of what you've learned and how does that fit the longitudinal study that you've been doing since 2009? Yeah, well, um, it's fascinating. And now we've been doing this research for every year for 10 years. So I'll give you some interesting comparisons between what we found this year and what we found in the first year we did the study. So we ask everyone in our research study how they gave last year so, uh, and how that compared with the year before. And then we ask them to look ahead and tell us how they're planning to give and whether that's up or down from how they gave in the previous year. So in the first section, when we said to 12,000 donors, how did you give in 2017? And was that up or down from 2016? And a record 53% of donors in the study said they gave, gave more last year than the year before. So when we first asked that question in 2009, only 35% of donors said they gave more. So that's a huge improvement over that period of time. And there's been a steady increase in the sort of positive optimism and performance of donors ever since about 2012, when numbers started to really rise. And just as good among the donors who said they gave less last year than the year before, in our current survey, only 8% decreased their giving, but back in the first year of our survey, 24% gave less. So there's been a huge improvement overall. But even so, my yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just I, I was just wondering why 
do, do we know the why? Is it is it just optimism, yes. or is there any particular uh, reason? Uh, are, are charities getting better at this? Are donors uh, appreciating the message more? Um, why? Yes, and one of the reasons is that charities are getting better at communicating with their donors. So a record number of donors, among the donors who said they gave more last year, 41% of them said that at least one of the reasons was because they were um, very satisfied uh, with the performance of not-for-profits they supported, and they felt those organizations were doing good work, and they were hearing about it. And that's a huge improvement, because the first time I asked that question, only 16% said they were satisfied with not-for-profits they supported. And it all comes down to post-gift communication. A lot more not-for-profits are doing a much better job at telling donors what they're accomplishing with the money that, they're, um, that donors are giving. And it's starting to show in the numbers, and that's a big deal. Uh, the number one reason why donors keep giving, they stay, why they stay loyal and give more generously over time, is because they feel they're making a concrete difference in the form of helping not-for-profits progress with the programs and services they operate. Uh, so on the other side, the number one reason they stop giving is failing to learn what not-for-profits actually did with their money. So there's been a notable statistical improvement in the last decade, which I'm really thr thrilled to see. Under the radar, well, though, there's this... Well, I know that you've been concerned uh, about that um, <laughs> over over uh, the years, and and sort of you know taking the survey forward and and proving to nonprofits just how important that communication is. Um, do you feel somewhat vindicated um, now that the numbers are starting to turn? Are charities starting to really learn the lessons that uh, that you've been out there uh, sharing for so many years? It's a real difference. And I see it in appeals as well, where more not-for-profits are not only communicating more effectively after donors give, but they're starting to zero in on restricted appeals, where instead of asking uh, donors to just give to the organization because the organization is a worthwhile charitable cause, but then every cause can say that, um, not-for-profits are sort of finally zeroing in on showcasing one key initiative that they want donors to pay attention to. Um, and that, uh, that's a real improvement. Annual fundraising always used to be just selling the brand, uh, the mission, uh, over and over again without being specific. And capital campaigns, on the other hand, were selling very specific initiatives in a time-limited way. But I think annual fundraising is getting better at taking the best from capital campaigns and listening to what donors want and combining them into a more strategic and more profitable approach to fundraising. 
That's terrific. Well, uh, bravo to uh, the, the Burke uh, donor survey um, for tracking that as an issue, um, and then for, for, uh, for charities uh, to be listening. Many of your top secrets um, you uh, put in a book called Donor-Centered Fundraising, uh, which now has a second edition. Um, why, why was a second edition necessary? I just published it uh, earlier this month, and it was very necessary because the original Donor Center fundraising is now 15 years old. Of course, I haven't aged at all, but my book has. <laughs> so, right. uh, but when I was looking uh, at <laughs> a lot has changed in 15 years, and uh, some of the changes are central to the concept of donor-centered fundraising. So the whole communications industry is completely different today from what it was 15 years ago. And donors themselves have, they're managing their philanthropy differently, and they've become very independent. So some of the changes they've undergone really um, require uh, fundraisers to interact differently with them in order to uh, keep them loyal and inspiring them to give more generously over time. And in, in giving uh, more generously over time uh, is is part of the deal, uh, sort of meeting my needs as a donor. You said it's becoming more individual, if you will. What does that actually mean? Yeah. Well, they're, they're still looking for the critical three things that they wanted back 15 years ago, uh, which is prompt meaningful acknowledgement whenever they make a gift. They want a great thank you letter and they want to receive it within days of sending in a contribution. Uh, they want every gift they make, and this is, even if they're a first-time donor making a, quite a modest contribution, they want that gift assigned to a specific measurable um, uh, purpose. And then before you ask them to give again, they want a report from you in meaningful and measurable terms on what happened with the last gift. And they say if they get all those three things, they will keep giving and give more generously. And every time we test that concept with our clients, uh, we find that they're telling the truth. That's exactly what happens. And not-for-profits raise quite a bit more money by deploying those three basic requirements. That said, donors are still changing how they give in a number of ways. So, and I'd say the most vivid example is that donors today support fewer causes than they did 15 years ago. When I take my middle-aged donors from the 2018 Burke Donor Survey, uh, they'd say donors between the ages of uh, 35 and 64, and I overlay them on the question, how many charitable causes did you contribute to last year? They support half the number of causes of senior donors over the age of 65. And we've been asking that question for so many years now that we've been able to see, to watch uh, the older middle-aged donors become seniors and they don't suddenly double the number of causes when they get into their older years. So this is a trend. Um, it's not going away. It's becoming more severe. And so for not-for-profits that rely on 
large volumes of donors for their financial success, they're going to have to adjust their tactics in fundraising because they won't be acquiring as many donors in the future. So the focus needs to shift over to retaining the donors that they already have because that's where the big money will be made. Mm-hmm. So in shifting how, shifting those tactics, um, how hard or how easy do you think that would be for uh, a nonprofit organization who's committed to trying to you know, implement the, the, the tactics that you're talking about here? You know, it's both impossible, and I wouldn't advise it anyway, to shift all of a sudden with all their donors. But I definitely would suggest testing uh, the donor-centered approach with a representative sample of donors so that they can see for themselves that that different approach really works. And that gives them the confidence to then spread that approach across a larger number of donors over time. So sudden shifts in um, in the way you run fundraising are not going to work. You can't bring a system as big as the fundraising system as we know it today to a grinding halt and then uh, take on a different approach. So a gradual approach is a much better way to go. Mm-hmm. So what specifically should our listeners um, today uh, be doing right in this holiday season, uh, and then what should they be uh, doing differently in 2019? Well, I'd say for the two months left in this year, there's a golden opportunity because okay. 25% of donors said they plan to give even more this year than they gave last year, which is great, and only 8% said they're giving less. But there's in the middle, there's this huge number, 57% of donors who say they're going to give the same as they gave before. And I zeroed in on them this year and asked them why they tend to give the same year after year. And the two reasons have nothing to do with influence from fundraisers. They say, well, I tend to budget the same amount for my philanthropy one year to the next, and I look at my income um, and my personal financial budget, and I say, yeah, I can manage that again, but I'm not really inspired to give more. So um, here's a strategy to start shifting those donors up. And fundraisers can see them if they look in their database. It's really easy to identify who's still giving, but giving more or less the same amount. And here's, I I think, is where the big opportunity lies this year. And I would suggest the, um, uh, the following tactics. So first, Um, before you ask these donors to give again, and it's not too late, I know it's the end of October already, you're already planning your appeals. But I think the first thing you do, you should do, is look at the donors who gave already at some point this year and at least send them, if not all your donors, a report to say, hey, this was what we've already accomplished this year thanks to you and other donors who stepped up to the plate. And give them a little bit of time to think about what they have already done for you. And that sets you up better to then put an appeal in the marketplace 
and ask them to give again. Donors complain a lot and they stop giving when all they get is one appeal after another. So start with information and thanking and then move to an appeal. And when you do structure a year-end ask, I would have a serious talk with your decision makers inside your not-for-profit first and ask them to focus in on one key strategic initiative that is a priority for the CEO and the board and then structure an appeal around that one key ask that you want to focus your donor's attention on. So not an unrestricted appeal, but an appeal for uh, to accomplish a specific initiative. And then get it out there and be very careful to thank donors immediately after they give. Um, and I would start working on those thank you letters now. In the updated version of donor-centered fundraising, I included an entire chapter of samples of thank you letters because it's an area where fundraisers, according to donors, fundraisers are not inspiring donors with their acknowledgement letters, and they could be great. So um, a fabulous thank you letter signed by someone of influence, a board member, the CEO, the artistic director, not signed by a professional fundraiser and get those out as quickly as possible as donors give, and pick up the phone and call donors and say thank you as well. And then into early 2019, as soon as you can, with all the donors who gave in your year-end appeal, circle back to them and tell them what you accomplished in this specific initiative that you reached out to them um, uh, in order to fund. And if you do that series of things, you're going to raise more money. So it's a step-by-step -step process that, as you said, you know, starts really with uh, good, honest education, uh, good, honest stewardship, um, and, and then can include an ask, and you'll be more successful if you follow that track. But a lot of donors are, uh, can be somewhat put off uh, by the fact that um, every letter that they get is an ask. Um, and mm -hmm. I, do you find that it's very difficult uh, for charities to break out of the cycle of doing, you know, education in the guise of an ask? It is. And donors even say, when you send me something in the mail and it's um, an information piece, which they really want to get, but the self-addressed stamped envelope sort of floats to the floor as they open as they open the mailing. Then they see it as an ask. And asks are powerful things. And thank goodness they are because when you are asking for money, you want to get donors' attention uh, and inspire them to give. But asks will out overpower anything else you're trying to communicate in that same correspondence. And that's why I suggest that you separate it, that when you're asking, do it with, you know, all the creativity and determination you can muster. But after donors give, when you want to come back and communicate with them, don't ask in those communications. We find that with electronic communications, if donors are 
satisfied or thrilled with the information they get from you, they will of their own accord click through to your website. They'll learn more once they're there, and many of them will follow through and make an online gift. Uh, so you can still get donors to give without asking them directly in post-gift communications to do that. Um, other examples of donors independently giving come after they get a phenomenal thank you letter. That alone, and great thank you letters by definition, definitely don't ask for more money because that would be very premature. Um, but great thank you letters can inspire some donors uh, to turn around and give again right away because they were so pleased to get something original, unusual, and feeling very personal. So donors will give anyway, uh, but not asking uh, limits the level of donor attrition that we experience with every campaign. And donor attrition is now so high that it's uh, approaching the crisis stage. So when I started doing research, um, the first gift to second ask attrition rate was 50%, and today it's 65%. So it's really grown. Um, so it, it, you invest a lot of money and a lot of professional time in, inquire, in acquiring donors in the first place. So to lose two out of three right from the get-go is, is a big waste of resources. Uh, so whatever you can do to hold on to donors as soon as you've acquired them is a really good thing. And it will have a snowballing impact for years. It, and I think that's really where uh, an important aspect comes in is to think beyond the the current letter, think beyond the the current holiday season, um, because donors don't necessarily think of their giving as charitable organizations think of the ask. There's there's often a disconnect there in terms of expectations and timing. Is that is that part of the message? Yes, it is because you know fundraisers are on pre under pressure to bring in more money every year, and there are deadlines. <laughs> there's the calendar year deadline, there's the fiscal year deadline, and so I I sympathize with their focus on the 12 month cycle, but donors don't work in a 12 month cycle necessarily. They work by inspiration more than anything else. So they will give and give often. Uh, to a single organization if that organization is sort of, quote, selling, unquote, something really exciting uh, and respects them, treats them well, and communicates at the back end. Uh, so they will give more often than once a year, um, or they'll, uh, in the case of disaster relief giving, um, many donors give uh, when there's a large-scale disaster unfolding, uh, and then they don't give again until the next large-scale disaster comes along, and that could be years later. So the calendar isn't as important to them, but you can inspire them uh, to give and to give promptly so that you can meet your internal pressure deadlines uh, by being donor-centered and very specific, and then speaking to them in really compelling language as well. You know, appeals have to be both emotionally and intellectually fulfilling for donors. Uh, so a combination of 
uh, evidence about why your organization is the best to solve a program or to innovate a new idea, uh, but also giving them examples through uh, storytelling. And then <laughs> the toughest thing of all is communicating both the um, uh, the uh, intellectual and emotional approach to your case in a concise manner. Uh, our latest research is that uh, donors say they'll give you a few seconds and about 15 to 20 words uh, to try and grasp what it is you're trying to tell them. And if you don't sort of hit your main point right away, uh, they're likely to dump your email and move on. So things are moving much, much faster today than they were before, but donors are still very, very tied to the idea of philanthropy. They say that for them, uh, giving is incredibly personally important because it gives them the opportunity to answer the question, am I a good person? Uh, and so, yes, they're, they're trying to monitor the effectiveness of not-for-profits they support, but they're also they're trying to monitor their own effectiveness as members of the community and good citizens. So uh, they're giving, they're giving more, and they're still leaving money on the table. I'd say maybe the happiest finding of our research study this year is that in spite of 2017 being a record-breaking year for giving, still 36% of the donors that we surveyed said they gave less than they could have. They left money on the table. And when I cut that by age and look at the youngest donors in the survey, who are a phenomenon, 53% of donors under the age of 35 said they undergave in 2017, even though their giving was a record for them that year. So there's huge potential out there. Well, that's a, that's a very important number that you bring each year is this, this, this concept of uh, you know, that there's still money left on the table, that, that donors aren't being inspired to maximize their giving potential. And, and as you've just pointed out, under age 35, 53% um, still have giving potential. We're going to take a quick uh, break here, and uh, Penelope, when we come back, you just brought up a very important uh, topic here for all of our listeners, and that is the role of online giving, the role of email in this sort of relationship-based uh, approach. Uh, it's not just all about uh, the post box anymore, but education, stewardship, and the ask, and how can you succeed in the digital world um, uh, and that will be uh, where we will go as soon as we come back from this quick break. Have you ever wished you could take back an email you sent to the wrong person? Or have that nagging feeling that your confidential message was forwarded without your consent? Do you sometimes email sensitive data even though you know most email isn't secure? And we all have, because we're busy. And because in the world of email, there are no takebacks. Until now. Introducing Virtru, the simple way to send and receive secure email with confidence. Virtru is easy to install and use, and it works with your favorite email programs like Gmail, Outlook, Yahoo, MacMail, and more. 
When you hit the Send Secure button, your email is encrypted before it leaves your computer or smartphone. And even better, you can revoke a message at any time. You decide whether a message can be forwarded by recipients. You can track where your message is forwarded and more. Download Virtue today and start sharing with confidence. Because everyone deserves digital privacy and security without hassle. Uh, please grab your calendars. Next week, we will be here live on the Nonprofit Coach, of course, 12 noon Eastern. And our page two expert will be Alana Harmon. And Alana's got a terrific new book uh, just published um, that uh, she's going to share with us. And that is called Learning on Purpose, How Each Nonprofit Position Can Use Evaluation to Get the Answers They Need. And that's next week here on the Nonprofit Coach. And don't forget... Uh, if you have Amazon Alexa at home, you can now say, hey, Alexa, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn, and it will play the most recent edition of our podcast, which, of course, immediately following this show will be Penelope Burke's show. And if you want to keep listening, just say, Alexa, next, and it will automatically move to the next uh, 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 podcast uh, within the series here on the Nonprofit Coach. Amy to learn here from the Nonprofit Coach. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we're live here with Penelope Burke, the president of Cygnus Applied Research, talking about the 2018 Burke Donor Survey. And uh, before we went on break, uh, Penelope, uh, you had raised this issue of the role of email and digital uh, technology, which is nothing new, um, but I, I think a lot of nonprofits still are struggling with how do they use uh, digital technology with traditional uh, technology uh, to build the kinds of relationships that your research, quite, quite honestly, demands. Uh, donors are demanding that kind of relationship with the charities that they care about. Now, first, I'll say that when it comes to appeals and transacting gifts, online gift transaction has finally caught up to direct mail. First time ever this year. 48% of donors said they made at least one gift uh, electronically online, and 48% uh, said they gave through the mail at least once. And in all previous surveys, mail always outstripped online. So even among our donors over the age of 65, for the youngest seniors, they're preferring to give online, to uh, uh, do research online, uh, everything has really morphed and changed. And I guess that's not a surprise to your listeners. But what is surprising is as um, online giving has become more commonplace and online communication, uh, print has developed a new cachet. And so it's becoming uh, once again attractive to donors. So if, for instance, you uh, send most of your communications to donors via email, then every once in a while sending them something in the mail uh, grabs their attention today in a way that it didn't five years ago and, and certainly ten years ago. So it's, 
it's interesting. And what we're finding from all donors is they're not sticking with one way in which they do their background research on not-for-profits or in ways that they transact gifts. So they might give online uh, this time, the next time they might uh, use the phone, uh, time after that they may give through the mail. They are, um, every time we come up with an innovation, a lot of the innovations today are in uh, the social media side of communication. Donors keep just sort of adding options for giving and learning about not-for-profits uh, to the ways in which they do now. They don't tend to replace one thing with another. So it means for uh, for fundraisers and the organizations they work for, they really have to be functioning in all kinds of communications uh, arenas simultaneously if they want to be successful with donors. And and as you as you pointed out, there's so much potential still, as you say, left on the table. Um, is is there? Any particular approach that you would recommend, uh, look, looking past the holiday season, building into 2019, as you said, you're learning from your survey that uh, direct mail uh, now feels like something new um, because there's so much uh, electronic solicitation. Does it get more attention? And and what about these uh, under 35 donors who have potentially the largest percentage of their giving still yet yeah. to give? Well, not only do um, the majority of young donors say they intend to give more this year, which is just phenomenal, but while their gift values are understandably less than middle-aged or older donors, um, you know, their giving is held back by uh, underemployment and um, student debt, largely. But I've since 2011, I've seen their average gift values uh, for a year's worth of giving grow exponentially. So uh, right now they give at a rate that's about 20% of the value of gifts offered by middle-aged donors. But the percentage increase is rising among young donors faster than anywhere else. And uh, you can see it in the generation statistics. Uh, baby boomers are retiring at a higher rate uh, than ever before. And that's a big demographic that's leaving, uh, the, the, leaving the business uh, industry uh, you know, quite quickly. And it means that young donors who've um, uh, perhaps got into the bottom floor um, of the job market are finally moving up the ladder and are earning higher pay. And it's happening quite quickly. So in the last two Burke donor surveys, I've seen a big increase, not only in the amount of money that uh, our young donors are giving, but uh, they're also starting to support more causes where middle-aged and older donors are reducing the number of causes they support. So they're going ahead in a number of ways. They're, they're not as influenced by economic swings as older donors are, so they don't tend to hunker down when the economy takes a dive or even um, uh, you know, goes down slightly. 
um, they are more willing to give to emerging causes that older donors are not as confident about giving to. Um, and then, you know, from the budget point of view, it's less expensive to communicate with young donors because almost all their uh, interests are electronic. Um, uh, and uh, one thing I found in the last couple of years that I hadn't noticed before, they're, they're not as turned off by things that cause older donors to stop giving, like over-solicitation, uh, the cost of fundraising, administrative expense. They tend to um, they tend to get past that more quickly, and they zero in instead on, you know, their question. Tell me exactly why you need my money, and if I give you some, where will you put it, and what's your track record been in the last year with uh, money you've received from other donors? And for young people, if you can answer those, uh, their questions, those three questions. Um, you're going to be in good shape because they are the rising stars of philanthropy. And is it the new shiny nickel that gets more of that attention, uh, or is it slow and steady, uh, which might lead you to organizations that have been around for a while? I mean, what is the what is the struggle there, um, and and if you're in either one of those camps, how do you succeed? Well, um, besides, I talked about restricted versus unrestricted giving already, which is the one thing that holds fundraising back more than anything else. But the second culprit is uh, the way we define um, which donors are worthy and which donors aren't. <laughs> and we do that by looking pretty much solely at gift value. So if someone gave a really generous gift, uh, they get treated better. They get a faster thank you. Uh, it's a more personal letter. They get information about what their gifts are accomplishing if they give really generously they're even offered the option to decide where they're going to put their money. Um, so, And then if you give modestly, which most young donors are still doing, um, you don't get noticed. Um, you're, you're sent more appeals, but you're not given those same considerations that more generous donors get. And so in, uh, what comes out of our research, and my sort of critical question is, if donors who are giving at the modest end of the scale get nothing to inspire them to give again, which is communication and personal acknowledgement, then it's not surprising why they stop giving. And this is, um, this is critically important with young donors. If, we, if they fall under the radar because of gift value, or first-time donors, regardless of their age. About 70% of donors, at the point they make their first gift to a not-for-profit, say they hold that gift value back on purpose. Uh, they want to see how the not-for-profit will communicate with them, you know, what will happen after. And then they say, if I like what I see, um, I'm ready to put my second gift where it actually belongs at a much higher level. So first-time gifts are not at all indicative of what a donor could actually contribute. 
and young donors' mm-hmm. gifts are not indicative of what they could give in the future. So if we kind of set gift value aside, yeah, we'll we'll make a lot more money. Right. I often refer to those, and I wonder what you think of this as sort of donors with training wheels, um, because they're you know they're they're trying you out. They haven't really made a commitment at that donor level, um, and and they want to see how am I treated, how am I valued. Um, is is that a, a reasonable way to sort of view those those early donors? And I suppose in some cases they could be young donors, but but uh, lower end donors can come in lots of different flavors, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, they can. And I guess if donors heard us say this, they would say it's the fundraisers who have the training wheels, but <laughs> because right. donors are yeah, trying right, to get right. fundraisers to sort of come around to their way of thinking. And and yeah. um, I do agree with them that what they're asking for is hardly outrageous. You know, it's pretty right. uh, logical and modest. And there's a whole lot of things that they say they don't want or don't need. And you know, they they think fundraisers are very kind to spend money publishing their names and reports and what have you. But but they're not uh, they're not at all convinced that this has an impact on who they support or how much they give. So, um, you know, their uh, donors are reasonable people by and large. Sort of there's the odd high-maintenance donor out there who grabs a lot of attention, but most donors um, don't ask for very much, and they're willing to give a lot more. So, yeah, there's all kinds of potential. Uh, I, I'm wondering, in, in hearing all of this, uh, is, is such important data, um, how much of, of, of this is, is really about uh, a sense of community, uh, whether that's an online digital community or I'm giving like other people give or I give to like causes, or is that sort of an age-old story that just takes on different um, a look and feel? over time, but that the young donor wants to be a part of a community, whether that's the new charity or the new way of giving, um, the, the more seasoned uh, a donor wants to, you know, give to like causes or causes that they understand or have cared about. How much of this is about a sense of community of giving? Uh, I think it's definitely there, and you can see the results in um, uh, innovative fundraising initiatives like giving circles um, and uh, even among young donors in their social media based relationship with not for profits you know, they're of course not surprising young donors are the most active in social media but they um, they are willing to do uh, to reach out to their own networks and some of them have quite fast networks and endorse causes that they support um, they're willing to uh, create a community uh, through social media around a cause that they believe in and raise funds independently in that way. Uh, we did research in the last two years on um, mass influencers that about 16 to 20% of those who follow you on social media are very active and they use the communities that they, the social media communities that they've built up um, to really help out not-for-profits in many ways, not just giving, but volunteering as well, um, uh, providing information, just getting engaged. So it's, um, it's real. And yes, uh, in some donors, sort of 
give quietly and independently and uh, the whole sense of community doesn't maybe mean as much to them as it does to others, but, um, uh, but the majority of donors, um, uh, here's, here's a great example, uh, donor of all the areas in donor recognition, uh, donor recognition events, uh, donors say, are the single most effective way to ensure that they will keep giving loyally and give much more generously over time. And of course, events are designed to bring uh, donors who support the same cause together, not just to learn more about what the not-for-profit is doing with the money they're giving, but to meet and spend time with other donors who support the same organization. In a study we did last year where um, some of the donors I interviewed were at the philanthropist of the year level of their giving, so they're invited to every donor recognition event in town uh, because their giving is so broad. And they say, you know, look, I can't give, go to the mall and I have to make choices, but... You know, if a not-for-profit asked me to come to their event and sat me at a table with seven or eight young people who had just started giving, I'd turn them into philanthropists before the night was over. So it's, you know, very right. exciting. They, they're they not only looking to be with uh, people who are similar to them, they want to sort of define and open up new communities by helping young people um, see the benefits of philanthropy and what it's like uh, to be a lifelong donor. It's very important to them. So so each generation can learn from the last. Um, so uh, P Penelope, I have to tell you, this uh, hour always goes by so fast, and the richness of your data uh, is, uh, is uh, just so evident. We've got just about two minutes left, and I was wondering in that time if you can, first of all, let uh, uh, my listeners uh, know how they can get the uh, your new book, um, the uh, the new donor center fundraising book. Um, how they can reach out to you and learn more uh, about the data that that backs up the donor the Burke donor survey. So if you can sort of round us out here with uh, that information, that will help all of our listeners. Great. So both our Burke donor survey when it's published, which will be soon and donor-centered fundraising, which is available now, are on our website. And I suggest you get the book there rather than at Amazon because it's less money. And it's going to be even less for uh, uh, listeners to your show because uh, before the show started, um, my colleague Kristen and I said, what can we do for listeners to the show today? So if you're interested in getting donor-centered fundraising, uh, head to our research, uh, head to our website, which is cygresearch.com, cygresearch.com, and um, uh, go to donor-centered fundraising. It's well-publicized, uh, second edition on the website. And once you get to the order page, if you put in your uh, code, which is Ted Hart, uh, then you get $10 off the book. Oh, $10 off the book. That's terrific. Well, Thank you uh, so much, and uh, so we do encourage all of our listeners to go to uh, cygresearch.com. And Penelope Burke, thank you for being our guest here again and bringing us uh, all of the tips and secrets of how to success 
uh, during the holiday season and in 2019. That has been the Donor Whisperer here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ted. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcasts at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach.